Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to welcome Professor Mike Hume back once again to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Mike is Professor of Human Geography in the Department of Geography at the University of Cambridge and a Fellow of Pembroke College. His work explores the idea of climate change from a range of perspectives, historical, cultural, scientific, revealing various ideological, political and ethical dimensions to the way climate change is deployed in public and political conversations. Before we begin this week's episode, here's a message about our partner, the Environmental Justice Foundation. The Environmental Justice Foundation is an NGO working to protect environmental security as a basic human right. Using powerful films and photography alongside hard-hitting investigations, EJF exposes environmental destruction and ensuing threats to human rights, telling the stories of those at the front lines. EGF takes local fights to the very heart of governments and businesses across the world to secure lasting global change. By providing training for grassroots campaigners, EGF also helps to give a voice to the next generation of environmental defenders, strengthening global action to protect people, wildlife and our shared planet. Thank you very much, Mike, for joining me today once again on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Nice to be with you again. So can you maybe just introduce yourself again uh, for for listeners who haven't heard the the previous interview? Just tell us a little bit about your background and current work focus, Mike. So I am Mike Hume and I'm Professor of Human Geography uh, at the University of Cambridge, where I've been working for the last four years. My interests have long-standing been uh, around climate change, first of all, from a natural science perspective. And then in recent years, thinking about how the idea of climate change plays out in human world, different social, cultural, political, uh, and ethical formations. And that's really now the current focus of, of what I write about and teach about as well here to students at the university. Very good. And and um, we're still dealing with COVID and we've got uh, the in, um, interlocking various environmental crises, uh, one kind or another. I just want what in particular is on your mind right now, Mike, and, and most worrying for you about the current situation? Uh, well, I think, obviously, the upcoming Conference of the Parties meeting in Glasgow in the next, for the next two weeks is a lens that is being used around the world to focus attention on some of the challenges around climate change in particular, of course. Uh, And uh, that provides a framework within which I think my own thoughts and comments um, can be refracted. I I think one of the things that concerns me perhaps about this particular moment and the the, uh, Glasgow event is how in a way that the danger of such events is it, as it were, <laughs> it squeezes the complexity and the political challenges around climate change into a very, very narrow window of time or a rhetorical opportunity, which people somehow see as either being decisive or not decisive. In other words, either this will 
succeed and put us put the world onto a, a safe trajectory, or it will fail and will be on a, a trajectory to collapse or to doom. And that type of binary framing of an event like Glasgow, I find unhelpful and, uh, in fact, dangerous in some respects as well. So that's perhaps um, what's uh, at the forefront of my mind at the moment. Well, you've seen uh, many cops come and go, and uh, as you say, um, a tremendous media attention surrounding uh, this one in particular. Um, it's a repository of, of hopes and fears in many dimensions uh, coalescing around uh, COP26. I mean, this is something, I suppose, you, you study the cultural construction and, 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 and framing of, of climate change. I mean, what, what, what do you make of it all, the way it's... it's um, being uh, framed uh, and, and, and the way the media is, 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 is dealing with it? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, it's important to recognise that, that this is not the final opportunity to, to, to change the trajectory of human development on the planet. I mean, there, there will always be opportunities every year, every month, every moment by different actors making different decisions, whether in science, business, religion, politics, Civil society. So, so this is an ongoing process. It's an ongoing project. I, I think what these cops do, uh, they do two things. Of course, they, at the one level, they are procedural. That that they are inter intergovernmental negotiating sessions uh, under the framework convention on climate change, and, and so in that sense, they have a very formal status as part of a an ongoing sequence of these that now goes back to 1995. But, but at, the, the, at the other hand, they also, and, and we also need to recognise this, they have become more than just that and, and increasingly become more than just that. They become these theatres, if you will, these global stages upon which a bewildering array of interests and uh, lobbyists and advocates and actors uh, from many, many different fields gather. And so it provides this sort of theatrical stage upon which the politics of climate change is performed, which is quite different, it seems to me, to what's going on in the procedural uh, settings, which, of course, are given by the protocols of the United Nations and the rule books of the Paris Agreement that, that, that uh, all the governments, pretty much all the governments, including the US now, of course, have signed up to. So these things are different. There is a, there's a, there is a passage between those two uh, that dimensions of Glasgow, but I think we do need to recognise that that at one in one sense they are rather separate processes. Yes, yes. What what's at stake here? Would you say um, in, in this 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 meeting? Um, what 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 would a good cop, as it were, look like in your mind? Uh, a good a good outcome, I, I think, from the procedural point of view, would be for the governments to make progress on the rule book, the Paris rule book, uh, which is moving towards the next stock take in 2023. And there are some technical issues here around finance, in particular, that procedurally need attention. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there will be some progress uh, on those uh, very precise technical questions. Um, uh, so, so I think from the procedural point of view you know that's that's what's what's needed um I, but i think 
what what a lot of the rhetoric around Glasgow is looking for is seems to be something quite different, and I'm not really quite sure how anyone could deliver on the, that expectation uh, because whatever governments may say to satisfy that thirst for rhetorical commitments will sim- simply be rhetorical commitments uh, uh, or rhetorical statements, which and, until they're actually delivered upon in two, four, six, ten, twenty years' time. Uh, will not really signify very much at all. So, in a sense, the the, the, the danger of the the, the the theatrical dimension of COP is that it can never be satisfied. It's an insatiable demand that that politicians and governments just cannot square, however much they may wish uh, to to square that circle. Um, you know, we saw back in Copenhagen in two thousand and nine when the last great uh, last opportunity to save the planet was was talked about in the run-up to COP15. Uh, and of course, it, it failed because of the, uh, the geopolitics of that particular moment. Um, but what came out of that was a commitment which almost was offered as a, a second-line uh, concession to for, for the richer nations of the world to commit to offering $100 billion per year to developing nations uh, in order to uh, secure a more sustainable development pathway. Well, that 100 billion has never materialized in 10 years, um, even though it was introduced back in 2009 with a great fanfare uh, of success and um, hope. So these, these, these announcements, they, they, they always will promise more in, in, in my judgment. They will always promise more than they will actually deliver. Uh, and so the, the danger, I think, is that the, 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 the expectation, the sights are being set too high here in, in what really can be secured. And the, the, the danger then is, is on the, the downward slope, uh, if you like, after Glasgow, the, the sense of, well, this has not saved the planet. This has not been the time that whatever action is deemed necessary has been delivered. And another cycle of despair and potentially more extreme forms of intervention then gain momentum, you know, whether that's through more coercive form of politics or through more uh, speculative technological solutions, such as spraying particles into the stratosphere. That type of cycle of hope and despair fuels those types of interventions and politics, which I find not particularly attractive. Yeah, um, m- many different voices, as you say, and squeezing it all in. But um, certainly, there is a stronger voice, uh, growing voice about the urgency of of, of the moment, as it were, uh, that we're in a climate emergency. How, how urgent would you say the situation is, and and how? Uh, yeah, how, how would you describe the situation, Mike? Well, the situation, I mean, the, the, describe the planetary situation as a, a rather tall order. Um, and, 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 I, and I think, you know, clearly the climate agenda and the COPs look at the state of the planet through a very particular lens. And they look at it through the lens of the climate system and in particular through these numbers of either two degrees or 1.5 degrees, or they look at it through the lens of net zero. 
uh, moving the world's economy, energy economy, to, to a fully decarbonized uh, state by whatever year, 2050, 2060. That's the lens through which this particular uh, constellation of interests looks at the state of the planet. Um, and, and, you know, those are very um, narrow, I, I would suggest that they're very narrow uh, targets, you know, 1.5 degrees net zero by 2050. There are many other things going on in the planet as well that, that matter, uh, and which then perhaps suggests that declaring an emergency simply on the name, uh, on the basis of a climatic condition or a presumed climatic condition uh, may lose focus from some of the other things that are actually circling around the planet. So uh, the obvious one would be biodiversity in, on the environmental uh, sphere. But if we look at the social sphere, we look at still gross inequalities within and between countries um, and the inability for uh, at least 2 billion people on the planet to access basic uh, human service, services uh, and welfare needs. We look at the um, rising tensions geopolitically uh, around the world, um, whether in uh, South Asia or Southeast Asia, uh, and you know, the dangers that those geopolitical tensions may spiral into uh, very undesirable consequences again for human welfare so so i i know i know people say well climate change is the only thing that matters um i don't think it is the only thing that matters i think there are other things that, that matter as well as climate change um and they need to, to be given uh, significant attention um and so this is not you know, a climate emergency, the danger of an emergency, any emergency, whether it's a COVID emergency, whether it's a world war emergency, whether it's a climate emergency, is that the emergency is framed in terms of a, of a single issue. And that single issue then dominates political decision making and public perceptions. And, that, and I think, I think cl claiming that this is a climate emergency is, is again, a, a reductionist move. Um, at what point? At what point? If if we think that climate change is an emergency, at what point in the future would this emergency be undeclared? It's very difficult to to see the terms under which this emergency would come to an end. And if and if an emergency condition is simply renaming politics as usual, which almost seems to me what is implied here by calling climate change an emergency, then the emergency label loses any type of traction and significance. If, 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 if life is an emergency, if the future is simply an emergency, then calling it an emergency really becomes very banal. Yeah, we, we, we've been through and we're in some kind of emergency with COVID now. Are there lessons, do you think, from how that has unfolded, um, how governments have responded, uh, how people have responded that, 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 that might be helpful in thinking about um, the future, as you say, if, 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 if some kind of emergency framing gains foot, uh, foothold? Well, yeah, I think, I think, I mean, it is worth reflecting on, on, on the pandemic. Uh, and 
you know, how the world has reacted to this over the last two years. I, I think, I mean, a number of things come to mind immediately, which do seem to have some bearing on how we think about climate change. I mean, one is to recognise uh, at one level the uh, innate uh, power of science and technology, uh, in this case, medical science and technology. Uh, and we can translate that across across into some of the sciences and technologies, particularly around energy uh, and um, uh, well, let's, let's just focus on energy for the moment. So, so science is, is a very powerful tool that humans have developed in order to make interventions or to manipulate the material world in different ways to bring about human benefits, in this case, a vaccine. And that was done uh, with a tremendous amount of effort and investment and with ingenuity. Um, so you could look at that as a, as a positive signal uh, that, that has come out of the pandemic. On the other hand, of course, some of the other uh, lessons or observations that we make around the pandemic might be less auspicious. So it re has revealed, you know, these deep inequalities that exist within and between societies, at the very least in, in the way in which vaccines are made accessible to people who have got differential access to basic health services or to the wealth or the infrastructures. Um, and that is something, again, highly relevant, for how we think about the risks of climate change. Um, and I think the other thing that, that really interests me uh, around uh, with the pandemic that I think, again, has bearing on climate change, which is something I've thought a lot about, which are the very different cultural values, political values, um, ethical values uh, that different social formations around the world have. And they bring two questions like pandemics to biodiversity, to climate change. We do not all think the same. And, and the way in which scientific evidence or medical technologies in the pandemic have been, uh, how evidence has been used by political actors or how vaccines have been appropriated or resisted by different uh, population groups, just reveals these differences in underlying values. We are not all the same uh, when it comes to how we think of our place in the world. And those, that very uneven landscape of cultural values is exactly the same uneven landscape uh, upon which climate change is playing out. Um, some people in relation to climate change will instinctively go for more modernity, for more technical solutions and interventions. <laughs> some uh, will resist from that and think actually that these forms of technological speculation and mastery are exactly part of the problem. Others will look for solutions in political saviors, you know, the charismatic leader, the strong man or woman who can lead a nation out of danger. Others would see exactly the opposite, that actually uh, climate change uh, requires a reinvestment in democratic institutions of governance. So all of those, what I call the uneven landscape upon which climate change plays out, we have seen this in, in a, a, a much more direct and immediate way in, in relation to the pandemic. Uh, so I think, I think we can 
that we can learn about the world that we live in from the pandemic, both its its possibilities, but also its deeply structural uh, problems. Um, and, I, and I think we have to be realistic about this rather than uh, presume that there is some magic key, some secret to be unlocked that will uh, uh, lead us uh, safely out of the problems that climate change presents to us. You describe, you talk about this uneven landscape and, and different ways of framing and thinking about these problems and solutions and so forth. But why is that a problem? You can have one group that believes in technology. You can have another group that believes in the power of uh, well, the role of corporations, another one that believes in strengthening d- democracy. They'll have their coalitions. They'll have their ways, their dialogue. They'll have their uh, kinds of influence. And out of that will emerge various kinds of solutions. Um, they, you know, independent of each other, some working, uh, uh, you know, as you say, against each other. But that's true of all walks of life, maybe, is it? And I'm just wondering uh, why, why you think that's a particular challenge. No, I think, I, I think you're right. I think that is exactly how I see the unfolding future. Um, uh, it, it, it is a palimpsest of many different in- interventions operating at different scales by different actors. Um, uh, some of them more successful than others, yeah. some of them generating perverse outcomes, actually, that, as it were, undermine the original intention for the intervention. Uh, it, but that is exactly, actually, the world that I think we do live in, which is why, coming back to the very reductionist framing of the problem of climate change around particular numbers or particular dates, which themselves determine whether or not the world has been, quote, successful or not, is actually a very unrealistic way of of reconciling what we've just said and seemingly both agreed about and and what these numbers seem to imply, because, because the reality of the world is that we will not somehow be able to orchestrate all of those different in interventions and self-interests uh, and initiatives and perversities in a way that will give us 1.5 degrees. It, it, it just, it's a degree of orchestration and harmonization and sort of some, some supreme intelligence just does not have that capacity to, 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 bring, to bring that about. Um, nor, nor to secure decarbonisation by 2050, you know, a particular date. Um, and if we measure success and failure by those numbers or by a particular schedule of numerical progress towards those numbers by particular dates, we will always set ourselves up for failure simply because of what we've just observed about these um, multiplicities uh, of projects and in- interventions and initiatives uh, the different actors will be taking. So it, it's, not a, it's not a problem. I think that is the reality. The problem lies more with the way in which we set out, set our, set out on, on, on you know, how we set these targets and, and goals for success and failure. We're, 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 measuring, we're measuring success and failure in the wrong way if, if we think single numbers can, can, can capture that. Yeah, I, but it, that, that kind of thinking is endemic uh, in contemporary society you could just look at something like gdp or measures of economic outcomes and so forth which um are 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 widely recognized now to to be uh 
to, to not give a full picture, to be incomplete, to be confusing, to, to be inaccurate and so forth. And there are many uh, emerging kind of measures, human well-being, and a variety of different ways of thinking about the, these questions. Um, so notwithstanding the fact that you know GDP is still used, there are growing moves to, to embrace these other measures are there something similar when it comes to talking about climate change? You know, we talk about 1.5 degrees. We'll be looking at how, you know, uh, 4, 415 parts per million, these kind of statistics and so forth. But presumably there are underneath those all kinds of other ways of, of, of reflecting where we are on this journey um, and some more qualitative, or, or is that not the case? Uh, okay, so I think there's some interesting things here. Uh, so, so yes, again, a brutal reality of, of public life, political life, is that numbers and targets, or, or rather targets and goals expressed in numbers, uh, are, are uh, unerasable. We're not we're not going to operate politically without without some form of enumeration. Um, but but I think there's a crucial difference uh, with with climate change, or at least with the way in which so much of the campaigning rhetoric around climate change is framed. And that is that, that if we can think of numbers and targets and goals and other areas of public and political life, and sometimes we hit them and achieve them, other times we don't, probably we don't more often than we do, but sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But if we don't, we have not then moved into a, a, an existentially different realm of reality by saying, well, it is now therefore time to give up or it's too late. It, you know, I give the example of, of um, homelessness. You know, we can, we can see homelessness as a, as, a, as a problem and we can set targets in order to reduce the, the numbers of people sleeping rough on our streets and we can come up with various forms of interventions. And we've seen this over you know, 50 years in the UK, in different cities. Um, but we never say to ourselves, if we do not, if we do not get, if we do not reduce homelessness by seventy-five percent or whatever the number is by twenty twenty-five, then it is too late. Then somehow we've moved into a, a different existential realm. Or, or take any other uh, welfare targets uh, that are used politically. The, the, what what seems to have taken place with climate change is that people seem to have literally taken some of the scientific projections of the future and converted these into cliff edge uh, scenarios, literally believing that if this is not achieved by a particular date or a particular time with a particular number, then we failed, We've give, we give up. And I think that's what I find most worrying is this, is, is this, um, uh, this framing of success and failure with climate change. Um, it, 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 which is why coming back to Glasgow, whatever people may think is, is a successful out, outcome of Glasgow, after Glasgow, there will still be just as much uh, need for thinking creatively, acting politically, innovating decisively, orchestrating alliances around the world. And this will continue indefinitely for the rest of the century. There is no cliff edge after which climate change is too late, whatever that might mean. So I think the way in which numbers are used rhetorically in the climate change case is entirely different from pretty much any other 
public policy issue that I can think of yeah. where when numbers are t- talked about. Yeah. Um, you know, talk, we talk about nuclear uh, proliferation. Yes, of course, we want to reduce the number of nu- nuclear warheads in the world. And it may be sensible to give us some targets in order to put some pressure on us. But we don't say if we haven't, if we don't meet these targets, then we it's it's time to accept that we've somehow moved into a new existential state where where nuclear war is inevitable. Well, and as, um, as you say as well, that the 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 invoking of the emergency type thinking, you know, if for X number of years we failed to meet our targets, we're now you know beyond a certain point, and we need to take more extreme action. That this kind of gets ramped up, the potential to ramp up and start to think of more, uh, more extreme interventions. Is, is yeah, that's 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 my worry. Which 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 this form of framing, this type of non-negotiable passing of certain dates and deadlines, leads you know lends fuel lends fuel to. Um, the, the emergency will continue forever. At least with the pandemic, you know, whatever we may think about how how our own government here in the UK, for example, or maybe other governments, I don't know, but certainly in the UK, at, at the very least, uh, I think we've we've seen, you know, every six months or so, um, Parliament in in whatever emasculated form it's now operating in, but Parliament has at least uh, been given a vote to say whether emergency powers. The government have appropriated to itself to manage the pandemic should be extended for another six months. So at least there, there is a possibility of an ending of an emergency. The horizon is six months. With climate change, when, when, when will the British Parliament, you know, under Theresa May, the British uh, uh, Parliament declared a climate emergency for the nation? When is Parliament next going to debate whether actually we can undeclare climate emergency in this country? I, I would bet you it's not going to happen, <laughs> because 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 what what and what conditions would have to change <laughs> uh, with climate change in in order for that debate to have any meaning at all? And how would you know? It kind of the uh, suggests a kind of technocratic vision where I mean already we're looking on the internet to see what the statistics are and what we can do and can't do, as it were, and traveling and updates and so forth, presumably with scenarios, emergency scenarios, given the, the time frame over which, you know, any any decisions any that we'd made today will actually have any impact. We would be reliant on all kinds of statistical analysis. And you could just see, you know, got to check, have we hit our monthly or annual targets and so forth? And then serious questions about, you know, what those targets are, are they the right targets and reframing and, and quite a and, and and the timescales on climate change are, are so different as well. The inertia in, in, in both the climate system and in the energy economy system, you, you know, we're looking at unfolding rates of decades, not not weeks. In the case of the pandemic, you know, we can look at these statistics on a weekly basis and see, you know, which direction we seem to be heading. And and therefore it makes sense for Parliament every three months to reconvene and say, well, do we want to, you know, hand hand these extraordinary powers over, over to a government with climate change? You're going to have to wait 20 years or 40 years before you could possibly gain enough um, insight into whether or not the basis upon which you declared the emergency back in 2018 has now passed and whether it's then appropriate to undeclare the emergency. Framing climate as an emergency, as you, you said, already uh, has happened at one level in the UK, but you, you see this as a likely development. 
Well, it's happened already in the UK. I mean, we are, we are according to the British Parliament, we are living in a climate emergency. Um, and and what, I'm, what I'm pointing to is that, is that if, if, if by declaring an emergency, you are in effect declaring that the indefinite, the, unforese- the, the foreseeable future without any possibility of ending is an emergency, then, then it, yeah. the, the idea of declaring emergency loses any any traction. We, 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 we are, the future is now a permanent condition of emergency. But I mean, that's happened, but it hasn't really. We're not living as if that's the case. And certainly the government, the actions the government taking are very confusing, if not downright misleading when it comes to if, if that were really the case of a climate emergency. Okay, well, if 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 that's the judgment, then it it, it simply throws the question in a different direction. Well, why has an emergency been declared? It yeah, simply becomes no, a, a, no, no. A, a, it's it's a simply re, it's a rhetorical yeah. device that actually again doesn't have any traction. I mean, yeah. so either way, whether you, yeah. whether whether there's whether you, whether the, the, there's action following the declaration or whether there isn't any action following the declaration, either way, declaring an emergency seems to me rather futile. But there are there are right now. It does seem people who are getting very scared there's the rhetoric there's the momentum there's the media but you do young people are are terrified uh many and this is a a growing phenomenon isn't it climate it would appear that some sections uh, of uh, our population uh, amongst the young in some countries uh will express this when asked um, and, I, and I think this phenomenon needs to be understood. On what basis is this fear being expressed? What you know? How how are how are these fears being tutored by uh, uh, outside actors and, and voices? I, I think it's very unfortunate that this seems to have been in the last two or three years, the, the way in which young people have approached and engaged this whole question of climate change. And, and, I, and I don't think, in my view, that some scientific commentators or some campaigning advocates uh, have been entirely neutral in this. And I think they have stoked those fears uh, in inappropriate ways. The, the very idea, again, of these deadlines, eight more years, 10 more years to act, of course, it lends those who simply hear those headline messages and take them at face value. Of course, it stokes fears. If, if actually, you know, if we listen to, to one or two of the, 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 the voices, you know, around the edges of Extinction Rebellion, if billions are going to die within a decade, then of course it stokes fears, particularly amongst the young. But I think there is there is some irresponsibility here. That is being expressed on the part of some scientists and some some advocating voices. Um, so I think we need to understand this phenomenon of young people's uh, fear and panic uh, and its impacts upon their mental health in in, in ways that are, are far more critical to the messaging around climate change. Um, you know, I, I put it simply. I mean, at one level, it's irresponsible to throw out these messages of doom without offering very positive, engaged ways in which actually a difference can be made and that actually this deadline 
is not actually an existential deadline. Uh, uh, so I, I, um, I, you know, I do think that, uh, that 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 there should be much more care and caution exercised on the on the part of some people. And it, this kind of, I suppose, plays into some of the arguments and ideas that you you have as uh, enunciated over the years about the the dialogue being very much driven by scientists and the scientific data and and I guess economists as well to a large extent and uh, whole areas of of humanities and you know, social and civic life are not engaged involved. Yes, the, the, the over the over scientization of, of, of climate change discourse, which, as, as we mentioned earlier, you know, has partly fueled this this reductionist framing of the problem in terms of numbers and deadlines, um, too heavily dependent upon upon scientific uh, prognostications of the future, rather than actually having a much broader way of thinking about the, the challenges that humanity faces, and humanity has always had challenges ahead of it um uh, whether short term or longer term i mean it, it, you know we've gone through cycles of 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 different degrees of of hope and despair um, simply if you look at western history over the last 500 years um you, you know i think you could point to any particular moment of western european history when somehow the entire population was living in a benign condition of of uh, unremitting hope and optimism for the future. Um, uh, so, so, so in a sense, this is nothing new. And I think we we should be educating our young people to to face in a rather less panic stricken way the challenges that humanity does face, the op- opportunities and the creativities and the inner spirit of, of the human being. And this is certainly what some of the humanities and the arts can can teach us alongside some of the perversions and the evils and the sufferings that come about through willful, selfish, myopic behavior on the part of these very same human beings. You know, we are both angels and devils. And and I think it's important for, for young, young people to have that as, as an integral part of their education, just as much as they need to understand some of the scientific or physical processes that lead to changes within their, uh, their material and environmental world. Yeah, I guess a deep discussion there as a, to, to what degree this is a, a, a different kind of problem, the scale of the problem, an uninhabitable planet, that idea of social breakdown, all the kind of dystopias that come into play. Um, mm. certainly, uh, and actually, yeah. this is, this is, I mean, I know you mentioned my new book at the beginning here, and this is actually, you know, one of the ways in which I frame my attempt to capture the very uh, essence of the idea of climate change in, in, in the book. I I set up the, these three ways of approaching climate change that do tend to put greatest emphasis on scientific knowledge. Um, and then I offer three, what I call more than science a- approaches for coming to terms with the idea of climate change, which, although not ignoring scientific information or scientific predictions, would tend to subordinate that uh, scientific claim on the future to other ways of being and knowing and acting in the world. So one uh, is very explicitly from a a, a perspective of post-colonial justice and resistance. A second is through the arts and the humanities, the the role of our creative instincts as human beings to reimagine both the future and uh, our, our opportunities to act upon the future. 
Uh, and the third one is to uh, look at this through the lens of various world religions and, and religions offer resources both to make sense uh, of both the sufferings uh, of the present, but also the potentials uh, for human agents to change the future for the better. You know, religions in, in many senses in their best formulations are ways of diffusing some of the worst sufferings of, of humankind, but also releasing some of the greatest greater potentials of humans. So, so what I do in the book is, is actually try to map out you know, a much more diverse set of frameworks uh, through which any individual, young people in particular, but any individual can actually begin to try to make sense of the way in which climate change has intersected with our imaginations of the future. I'm glad you 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 brought up the, the your your book. It's it, climate change, um, and, and a key argument is you know as as, as we've been discussing that it's multifaceted. You, were you tempted to uh, to to try to to put in solutions? There's a growing appetite for solutions. Your work uh, opens up many new dimensions or brings together uh, a wide variety of, of perspectives and is very liberating in that sense. Um, at the same time, I was wondering, uh, did you feel pressure or we, you're maybe, maybe uh, even from the publishers to, to you know, there's a tremendous appetite now for, for you know, what to do, what can we do? Um, and I suppose underlying this an idea is, is understand and contextualize the situation and, and bring in these different frameworks and ways of thinking. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the way I would approach this is that I think the the different frameworks and approaches and resources that I'm pointing to in the book are ones that a lot of different political actors with different cultural values would be able then to draw upon and to mobilise in order to advance a whole variety of different types of interventions, uh, uh, both at you know, larger political scales but also locally. I certainly didn't think it would be my place in, in certainly not in my writing to 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 advance you know the the, the top ten solutions to <laughs> climate change. Yes, uh, but I do think I do think by offering a wider palette of perspectives and resources that will appeal to a variety of different cultural values, it then actually opens up a much bigger space for people to begin to see what they may select to, to do or to lend their support to, not in a way that will, in a decisive sense, bring climate change to an end, but actually leads to changes in their own worlds at whatever scale they their networks and their political associations are operating at, that actually can make a difference. So that's what I see the purpose of the book uh, to be. Um, and it is an attempt to get away from this over-scientistic framing of climate change and to say we actually need to mobilise the full range of our human intellectual and imaginative capabilities, not just science. I, you know, science is certainly there as part of that portfolio of ways of approaching the world, but it needs to extend well beyond science. Uh, as I say, to forms of political resistance, 
driven by a deep sense of justice or injustice, forms of artistic creativity, uh, whether in performance uh, or in material forms, uh, and mobilizations that are inspired by some of the best elements within our world religions. Um, and, I, and I think if we can have that, what I would call a 360 degree approach to the challenges of climate change, we at least hopefully would head off some of the dangers that I see with a more reductionist way of thinking climate change that we've been talking about in the, in the earlier parts of, of this discussion. This and I think the other interesting, the other interesting thing, I mean, I, I do, again draw attention to this in, in one of the chapters in the book, is, is the way in which our, 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 our thinking about the future you know, do, does tend to end up going in either dystopic or, or, or utopic di directions. And again, this is nothing new. We, we, we've seen this you know, in literature over the last hundred years. <clears throat> that um, and, and dystopias, when it certainly comes to the environment, dystopias seem to outweigh utopias by about five to one. <laughs> Dear, yes. Um, which is unfortunate, I think, although yes. there are reasons perhaps why that uh, might be the case. But I think it's unfortunate if, if the only way we can think of creatively in, in fictional terms about the future is to draw attention to the dystopias. Um, and I do give examples of, of, of more utopic forms of, of thinking in creative uh, practice in the book. Yes, and, and the, the, um, the kind of deeper instincts in a society for justice and hope and dignity uh, are, have a tremendous, are, are tremendously important as well. And I was wondering, you know, the idea of this kind of climate solutionism, creating new solutions, new ways of, of you know, solving the problems and, 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 and so forth. If they do not have these values, you know, embedded and at the heart, in their heart, it, it, it is problematic. You can have new, 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 new approaches, new ideas, new technologies, but they the results might be much worse i, I think that's right uh, and i and i think again reading history uh, can 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 teach us this that that solutions or interventions that may start off as well meaning can easily be appropriated by uh, powers or interests that are less well meaning uh, and technologies that seemingly start off being benign uh, or at least with very minimal risk, perversely uh, actually end up creating even greater dangers. I mean, the obvious, most obvious example from my own sphere of work has been the, the case of um, CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, uh, which were invented uh, in the early decades of the 20th century and for many decades fueled the huge growth in refrigeration technologies that were emancipatory for many uh, people, for many people around the world. Uh, the technologies of refrigeration, but in the 70s and 1980s, we discovered actually here was a technological, uh, a, a wonder technology that actually had perverse effects on stratospheric ozone. So technologies, unfortunately, have at the very best a checkered history uh, of uh, both being emancipatory, but actually also leading to further problems that in turn themselves then demand further technological solutions.
So I think we need to be very cautious. And certainly when we're thinking about large-scale, uncontrolled experiments like spraying particles into the stratosphere, uh, which is you know, it's rising up the agenda of both researchers and uh, policy advisors uh, as a possible backstop solution to climate change, I think we, we should get very worried. It's on a par to me and a number of others, I think, with some of the whole technologies, medical technologies about germline modification, that yes, we have the capability and the potential to do that. But actually, is that wise to start permanently altering the human germline and allowing uh, those technologies to be used by interests that inevitably, if we understand humanity, will gather around technologies that offer possibilities of profit and, and control of other humans? I, I just think there are many, many dangers uh, along the route of um, technical solutions that are untempered or unmanaged by other political or moral values that need to be given much more salience and attention than they tend to be by either scientists or technologists. There's been quite a momentum on this and a shift and um, a variety of voices supporting, saying, well, you know, we need to research this at the very least and to think about this and to consider what's entailed, what the implications are. Uh, some people uh, find that problematic. Others are, have, have, have been very supportive of that idea. Um, but it, is, it does seem to be getting momentum. It, it, it is getting momentum. And I, th I think my view and, and others that I, I work with you know, would want to inject into those discussions you know, very loud notes of caution and circumspection about how fast and how quickly one goes down this path. Um, you know, there are slippery slopes, uh, as we've seen in many other areas of technology. Once you start down a particular technological pathway, it's very difficult to stop it. Um, and, and, I, and I think coming back to what we said before, the, the more the more one, one ramps up the rhetoric of if we fail either in Glasgow or in three years' time or in five years' time, to somehow decisively dismantle the fossil fuel economy, you simply lend power to those people who would propose and implement emergency solutions, such as spraying the atmosphere with particles. Um, and I think, but I think on a smaller scale, on a slightly less grandiose scale, I, I think you know, all forms of technological solutionism needs to be subject to very, very careful scrutiny, whether it's so-called nature-based solutions, or, or whether it's you know what we're now embarking on, which is a very rapid dash towards uh, electric vehicles. You know there are significant dangers uh, that are quite foreseeable uh, as soon as you stop and think and analyze about them. That it would do well for us to head off before we find ourselves mired up with them. And I think the more we make these decisions, uh, as it were, with a gun held to our head because we've only got three years or five years to act, the less likely these forms of technological interventions are going to be subject to very careful uh, scrutiny for their uh, uh, untoward uh, side effects and consequences. So finally, a, a, a simple question on top of the simple questions that we've been discussing. Where can we find or where would we get the ethical and moral guidance for these kinds of decisions? Um, 
Well, I, I mean, there's there's a, a, a long uh, history in different cultural and religious traditions of, of reflecting on these normative questions. I, you know, coming out of a religious tradition myself, Christian Protestant background and conviction, I would see that there is great value in mobilizing some of these uh, religious uh, and, and religious ethical traditions. Um, but I don't think one has to limit it to religion by any means. Uh, again, from the humanities perspectives, there are many resources, um, hundreds of years of thought, whether in Western culture or Confucianism or, or Buddhism, that would put into the foreground considerations of care, compassion, of caution, that temper the other dimensions of our nature, which seem to so often be about power, control, self-interest, and greed, and self-satisfaction. That I think is what most, if not all, of the world religions, at least when they're expressed at their highest level, would would tend to introduce uh, uh, for us. And I, and I think, therefore, we should give much greater weight to humanities when thinking about the mobilization of ethics that can temper environmental um, damage and technological innovation. And there are voices that are looking for more transformative, talking about ideas of eco-civilization and you know values-led societies that go deeply, that look for deep transformation. And um, hopefully their voices and the, there will be more, 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 there seems to be growing momentum there as well. But it does seem, you know, as you said and intimated earlier, that the kinds of ways in which we're going to deal with the, the problems that we, we, we face today inevitably will be a reflection of the particular socio-political and indeed you could say spiritual you know contexts of of, mm. of current society and you know the, the economics in particular uh is something that i, I guess I, I i i think about a lot um and and does seem to be a, a coming back to this the question of the cop just finishing now that that this question of of financializing nature, of turning it into, you know, in the Descupter report, I think they, the opening line or one of the opening lines is, you know, biodiversity, uh, uh, biodiversity loss is, is, is an asset management problem. Um, mm. I'm just not sure how helpful that is. Yeah, well, that, 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 I mean, that itself is a, is a, is a meta narrative, I suppose we could call it that. And, you know, there are other meta narratives that are out there, but, but the economic one, the, the financialization, the commodification one is is a meta narrative that has power. Um, it has some ethical dimensions to it. I mean, the, the Descriptor report, you know, has some good things to say. I think within it, uh, even if one wants to challenge its overall uh, framing of biodiversity as asset management, um, but I think it's that it's that level of uh, having these uh, much larger visions and pictures of, of, of the world that we live in, ones that exceed simply a scientific diagnosis of the physical processes of deterioration on the planet. Actually, we need these other more human-centered, ethical-centered narratives that generally actually do provide much of the moral and 
political energy that societies need in order to bring about uh, large-scale changes. But the idea that, that somehow the world will unify itself around one such meta-narrative, I, I think, is sheer illusion. You know, there will never be one strategic narrative that unites 8 billion people in a, in a 200 governments. We have to recognize that there are going to be competing, uh, competing narratives um, that mobilize and motivate different people in different ways. Notwithstanding the prevalence of a particular form of financialized, globalized economics, which seems to be pretty popular amongst most states in the world, but yes, indeed. Um, what's next for you, Mike? Uh, well, my next uh, my next major writing project is 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 to, to take a much much closer look at the at the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change which, of course, has been quite central to the whole climate story for 30 years or more now. And so what we've done, we've gathered um, together 30 of the leading scholars who studied the IPCC uh, to understand how it works, how it makes its knowledge, what some of the characteristics of that knowledge are, and brought them all together to uh, produce a jointly written uh, volume that will be appearing next summer that will provide the most authoritative account yet of what the IPCC is, how it makes knowledge, what influences it's had, and also what are the blind spots within its uh, organization and operation. Fascinating. Very important work. Thank you so much for your time today again, Mike, and for sharing the, your thoughts and uh, ideas and all the work you're doing here. And I wish you the best of success with your ongoing projects. Thank you very much. Nice to, uh, to talk with you again. If you like what you heard today on the sustainability agenda, we think you'll enjoy Catherine Hayhoe's new book, Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. One of climate change's most effective communicators, Catherine provides inspired guidance on how to navigate all sides of the conversation on a topic that is currently one of the most politicized and divisive. Based on the science and illustrated by vivid stories from her personal experience, Catherine shows why we need to go beyond facts and statistics and begin the conversation with shared values, connect the issue to our individual identities and inspire collective action. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.